Bible's got you tied in knots If you're burdened with religious thoughts Come grab a drink and join the choir It's Heretic Happy Hour Oh yes it is time for the Heretic Happy Hour podcast, boys and girls Oh, I just love that theme song Barrett Johnson gets me every time He's a wonderful man. And um, we are going to, um, we're going to basically solve the world's problems. And that's what we've been doing in this cancel culture uh, podcast series. Uh, I think so far we've solved solved poverty, um, criminal justice reform, you know, things like that. And so uh, welcome to the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. Pour yourself a tall drink, sit back, relax, and get ready because we are about to drop another bomb. And my name is Keith Giles. Uh, I am one of the three uh, hosts here, uh, co-hosts of the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. The author of several books, uh, including them just recently released, Jesus Undefeated, uh, condemning the false doctrine of eternal torment. Yeah, yep. you know, sometimes you just, you just gotta do it. That's right. Hey guys, so I'm also joined by Matt and Jamal. Guys, introduce yourselves and say hi. My name is Jamal Javanji. It's a pleasure to be back on the Heritage Happy Hour with you. I'm a author I'm the author of the most recently released book called Living for Living. Uh, which is now on, on audio and uh, yeah. So go pick that up and uh, it's great to be back with you on the here to Capiara podcast. And since we got Keith, uh, Keith, old man Giles, this is actually the culture wars series. Oh. Keith, You said the cancel oh, that, culture. That's what this episode yeah. is going to be okay. about. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry about that. Yes. Yes. That. Yeah. Get it right okay. next time, man. Get it right. We're going to have to okay. replace you. We're going to have to cancel you. <laughs> 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 yeah, but that makes me that makes me Matt DeStefano. I also have a new book out. It's called Devoted as Fuck uh, or Fuck if you want to say it. But um, yeah, it's a you know it's a journal. It's a uh, devotional. Go pick that up. I've heard uh, I've heard good things and I've heard bad things about it. So uh, pick it up and decide for yourself. <laughs> um, uh, yes, we. Um, I um, I've, I've accepted a newly uh, a new position for director of the hotline. And uh, so this is my third week on the job. And so let me just announce that uh, we have a hotline and the number is 240-343-7379. I love the hotline because we, we get texts as well as voicemails. And I just love it. We have a text today. Can we cue that up? This is from a listener quote. I recently discovered your podcast while searching for interviews of David Bentley Hart. I've listened to a number of progressive-leaning podcasts centered around Christianity, and yours has quickly become my favorite. There are two things that I think set you apart from the crowd. First, you seem genuinely happy to be doing what you're doing. Your tone is joyful rather than cynical. Specific ideas aside, you seem to have experienced something real and meaningful, and to know that you have experienced it, and to know that you have experienced it. Second, you all seem to be well-read in classical Christian theology, and even after deconstructing from evangelicalism, you maintain a respectful stance towards the overall Christian tradition. Is he listening to the right podcast? Uh, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> he can't even finish reading. Jim, 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 <laughs> I'm so sorry. Reading. Not Jamal. Not Jamal, though. Okay. Okay. I apologize. I apologize for that, that, that for that break. Let me continue. <laughs> Let me continue the text. This is very, very <laughs> this is very refreshing to me. I have been disheartened to see many who reject Christian. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. Please. Uh, you can, can somebody it. You can, finish this? I, I, I can do this. I can do it. 
Okay. You got this. You got this, Jamal. Okay. Um, this, this is very refreshing to me. I have been disheartened to see many who reject Christianity in whole when the thing is when the thing they really have a problem with is just evangelicalism. You give me hope that there is a path forward for those who are <laughs> deconstructing, but who also love the tradition as much as I do. Thank you for what you do. W. Tyler Reynolds, <laughs> Iowa City, I Iowa. Think, ah, we made it. We made it. <laughs> What's funny is I don't think we've ever had a text that we couldn't oh get through gosh. because we were laughing so hard. And that and uh that was that was classic. <sighs> oh, beautiful. I'm sorry. Was, so yes, well, first of all. I, I I don't want my laughing to come across as disrespectful to the to the listener. I do understand where you're coming from, and I really appreciate your first of all. Thank you for listening to the podcast, and thank you for your text and encouragement there. Really appreciate that. Um, the only reason I laugh <clears throat> is not because first of all, I I think it's great that you respect the Christian tradition, and I know that's important to you. And you know, you, you, I know that there are there's a side to this conversation where people can get cynical and you know just kind of get jaded and angry and that kind of thing. And I understand that. And I've been there myself, so I get it. With that said, I think what made me laugh is that <clears throat> actually I actually don't have a lot of respect. like for me personally, I don't really um, have have a lot of respect for the Christian tradition. Um, in any form, not just evangelicalism. I mean, I'm talking about Roman Catholicism. I'm talking about the whole thing in general. And I have reasons for that. And again, I love Jesus. I love the teachings of Jesus, but I don't think, I think we got off on a <clears throat> pretty, pretty contrary foot pretty early on in the Christian tradition. And I think a lot of what has been created, I'm not, that's not to say that God, I don't think God works through it and that there, you can't see, you know, beauty and mystery of the divine in and through the Christian t- tradition. Cause I think you do in, in many different forms uh, throughout the ages, but the, 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 the institution itself, the religion itself and all its various forms and labels. I, I don't have a, I, I do. I don't have mm. a lot of respect for it. I think for, for a variety of reasons. Yeah. yeah but I still, th- I still think you maintain respect for people who do. And that's right. pretty clear. And I, and I, and I think that's, that's, that's the beauty why of, um, of this show is that, where wherever we're at, we have we try to have respect for each other and and truly enjoy having dialogue about things that we may or may not agree with. So I, mm-hmm. I mean, and I think yeah. that's that's what we try to do on the show. And and I'm glad people recognize that. So thank you, Tyler, for that. Yeah, thank you, Tyler. Yeah, got another one. Okay, yes. Can we try okay, we do. We have another text. Another text. Here it is. Quote: I am curious to know your views on reincarnation. I hope you will consider this topic as a future podcast. I love your show. Thanks for all you do to encourage me. Yeah. Unquote from the listener. I think that'd awesome. be a great topic for yeah, another you. another another show. Do you want to um, do an elevator pitch for where you're at real quick? Or do you want to just kick the whole thing down the road? Well, no, I think we, I mean, I'd love to. I think we actually have um, a show coming up that will touch on this subject. Right, I hope so. Um, yeah, we'll do it. With a with a guest that we have interviewed already, um, who actually got into this a little bit, so we'll get into that when we get into our, I think, what supernatural series or something yeah, yeah. or something like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, my my understanding is that reincarnation is nothing new. Um, there's a lot of evidence for <clears throat> for this belief to actually have been um, uh, part of the the belief system of some early Christians. Um, even though that's not really well known or talked about today. Um, 
you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a taboo concept, you know, conversation in the West, although most of the Eastern world, this has been a part of the, the tradition for a long time. I mean, I, I, the, my understanding of it, I mean, again, not to get it all ill into it is <clears throat> I think when we let go of the, of the identity to the body, like the human, this human body, like this is this a whole identity is summed up in my my finite life that I lived here. I mean, once you start to let go of that, and start to understand that your your being itself goes beyond the body. So you're actually more than just your human experience. So <clears throat> the idea that your consciousness, spirit, essence goes on beyond your body is a form of life beyond the body. And so what that life goes on to do after that, we're, we're okay with, you know, and I mean, I think most of us can accept that. And then the idea that maybe our life existed pre-incarnate, like pre when this body, we had a pre-incarnate existence, I think can be supported in Christian tradition and even some scriptures that support that, not just for Jesus who, who recognized his own pre-incarnate existence when he said before Abraham was born, I am, um, I think that our existence can also be, I think there's evidence for that before our own birth here. And that's, I know that's controversial, but we can get more into that, but I do believe that. So the idea is, could we have more than one lifetime on the earth? Absolutely. I don't think that that, I've an idea. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, I think we'll definitely have to get into it on an entire episode. I'm pretty agnostic. Keith, I don't know where you're at. Um, uh, I'm, you know what? I will hold my perspective on that until we do a whole episode. On yes. That. All right. Tease. We'll have to tease that. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll tease that out. We'll cover that on the next show. But uh, for now, it's time to move on to our lovely, lovely heretic of the week. It's the heretic of the week. My name's Becky Yates. Some people call me a heretic. And I am so honored to be Heretic of the Week. I cannot wait to receive my plaque and my trophy. Well, hi, um, Becky. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you get a plaque and a trophy, but um, we can guarantee you uh, 30 minutes of a conversation. That is as good as a plaque and a trophy. Yes. Well, Becky, um, hi, it's Matt again. We got to uh, hang out in Nashville a couple months ago. I had a blast. I, I did too. It was such a surprising dinner conversation. I had no idea that I was going to meet a real life heretic. <laughs> well, uh, to give people the context, uh, you know, my brother and sister-in-law who are in Nashville. Right. And when we were going, we were going to spend, we were out there during the summer, which God, I don't know how you deal with the summers in the South. It was beyond ridiculous uh, with the humidity, but we warm. had it. It got worse. Oh, oh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know how, but we had a lovely dinner, and my sister-in-law was like, "You got to meet this uh, wonderful lady." So you joined us for a dinner. Do you remember the place we ate at? Because it was super delicious. Oh my goodness, I don't remember. I don't either. It was a super. I cannot remember. Super- I can tell you how to get there. <laughs> it was like a super hipster, like celiac friendly place, and so I was on cloud nine. It- it it yes it was and I I felt um, hipper just walking into it. Oh totally totally. Um, well anyway, good again to talk to you. Uh, what we like to do is, when we have guests is ask them why in the world would some folks consider you a heretic? 
Well, I spent the first 53 years of my life as a Southern Baptist, so it doesn't take much to get outside that realm and have people call you a heretic. But there are some specific things that take me way outside of evangelical world, and I have worked very hard the last 11 years to heal that image of God that was ingrained in me from the evangelical world. Uh, Let's start with the fact that I don't believe in hell. Uh, I've left that belief behind. I am more falling onto the side that I believe there is an eternal peace available for all. And that there is not this hellfire damnation people burn forever and ever with flames. I, I think there is an eternal peace available to all of us. And I think that um, I am coming down on the side of those heretics of love wins, and it's a beautiful place to be. I would, I would agree. <laughs> uh, the other big thing, and this I think was the biggest leap for any evangelical, is to leave substitutionary atonement behind. Um, that teaching is so vital to the evangelical world and particularly to Southern Baptist. And when I say I was raised Southern Baptist, I was not an occasional churchgoer. We were the Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night special studies. We often shut the church down. I was involved in missions organization and choirs and Sunday schools and church training. I was uh, a hymn memorization contest winner two years in a row. (laughs) Scripture memorization contest winner. I used to you know, I would memorize entire chapters of the Bible, very involved in youth activities growing up, got involved with young life as a senior in high school. And that's where I really kind of started to get messed up as far as becoming more conservative evangelical. See, in the 60s, the Southern Baptists were in some circles were much more moderate than they are now. And I really wasn't exposed to the extreme evangelical thought until I got involved with Young Life and then went off to a Baptist university. And the extreme right-wing teaching did not come from professors, but from fellow students. I met a lot of Southern Baptist kids that were preacher kids and missionary kids from smaller towns. And they were much more conservative in their thinking. And I would just shrug and go, well, that's not right. And I had professors that actually wanted us to think. Hmm. And this was in the early 70s before the conservative movement started to overtake Southern Baptist world. And it really was because of many of these professors who wanted all their Southern Baptist babies to think that they got up in arms and started this movement. And part of the movement was getting their preacher boys that they knew would be on their the right side of thinking. They would send them into classes at seminary, at the Baptist colleges, and they would target professors that they thought were teaching their preacher boys wrong. And they would have them secretly tape lectures and then bring it back and then give them the powers that be targets to go after. And they fired people because of these secretive recordings. But it all happened after I left college. So 
I actually got exposed to some people that gave me the gift of doubt mm -hmm. and questioning. Um, and I'm very, very grateful for that. But leaving substitutionary atonement behind and coming to know Jesus, not for what he could do for me to, as my savior to save me from my sins, that I was worthless until Jesus came along, but to learn the person of Jesus and the cosmology of Christ and learn the difference between someone who was just here to save me and someone with whom I would have a relationship based on love and grace and mercy. And I no longer believe that I am a worthless person that God cannot love unless God's son made a blood sacrifice for me. Mm. And the whole teaching of if I were the only sinner in the world, Jesus still would have shed his blood for me. The guilt and the, the hurt and the shame that that puts on you, um, I have left that all behind. And so I no longer believe that's why Jesus came. I believe Jesus came to show us that love works. And the religious leaders and then the political leaders destroyed him for it. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So leaving that behind was huge. Yes, Becky, thank you for sharing that. This is Jamal, by the way. Um, great to have you on the podcast. And uh, I used to live in Nashville, so it's my old stomping ground. Ah, did you really? <laughs> I did. I did. Yeah, I was uh, in Franklin for a bit, and then I was up actually in Nashville proper, um, not too far from the airport. Oh, well, that's um, kind of where I live right now. You could have been my neighbor. Oh, <laughs> awesome, awesome. Well, I, I, I love what you're sharing, and um, you've been. It, it sounds like you've been a pioneer, and you've been around for quite a while, um, and have witnessed a lot of. I mean, from the from the late '60s to, to the '70s, just this this shift in you know, thinking and obviously the entrenchment, so much dishonesty that went on in controlling people's thinking in the Southern Baptist world. I totally understand that because I, I went to a Southern Baptist university and, you know, know all about that world. Uh, um, but my, my, and so I totally get what you're saying. Um, and, but it's, it's amazing just to see the full circle that we, that you've come from, you know, and, and uh, I feel like your journey mirrors so many, so much of the journey of other people. I guess my question for you would be, um, based on the journey that you went through and where you are now, if you could like step into a time machine and go back in time to your to your young self in uh, in college, um, what would you say to yourself in preparation for the journey? Like, how, what would you what would you want your younger self to know that you have come to realize now? You're stronger than you think you are. That the patriarchy does not have to control you. I, you know, coming along in the early 70s, I thought that they were in charge. And I, I, I only knew how to give in and to think that they were right because they had raised me. And to realize that I had a voice and I had a brain and I had thoughts and that they were valid never occurred to me in the 70s. Plus, you're coming along at a time when women were just starting to break out anyway, and they were not breaking out in the church. Mm -hmm. 
and they were just starting to break out in the world. When I went off to school, it was still expected, particularly growing up in the South, I was going to go to a college. That I really appreciate my parents for. They totally, you know, supported that. But it, the point was to go and meet a guy that I would marry, grow up, be a stay-at-home mom, and have kids. There was really no other expectation mm. for me. And if I could say something to my 18-year-old self who was starting over, is you have a voice. You have a brain. There is so much more. There's nothing wrong with being a stay-at-home mom. I did it for 10 years. It was wonderful and rewarding. But then I had a career that was also wonderful and rewarding. And I always have wondered, what if I had started out preparing for it and it wasn't just something I fell into, what would have happened? That's so good. That is such a great question. I'm glad you asked that, Jamal, because you're right. Like so many people need to hear what others have learned throughout their lives. And especially someone like you, Becky, who has experienced so much. And, and like you just mentioned on almost two ends of the spectrum, being a stay at home mom and then having, you know, a wonderfully rewarding career. If you don't mind, could we maybe touch on uh, your career? Um, you, you were recently a pastor, correct? Yes. And <laughs> that was quite a circuitous, circuitous journey that got me there. Um, I really wasn't even thinking about a career until 1987. I was 32 years old and I found myself facing a divorce. I was married to an abuser who had also been a Southern Baptist pastor. And um, when his emotional abuse became physical and I realized I was in a multi-generational family of abuse and I had four children, two boys and two girls. And I said, my boys will not grow up thinking this is how women are treated. And my daughters will not grow up thinking that's how they should be treated. Mm. And so that's when I got out and I had to find a job. I was living in Nashville at the time and Southern Baptist and went to a Southern Baptist church where I was extremely involved. And several people that went to our church worked at Lifeway Christian Resources. Mm. And Lifeway is the world's largest denominational publisher. At that time, it was called the Baptist Sunday School Board. And they said, oh, you're Southern Baptist. Come down there. They'll hire anybody if you know people. And evidently that was true because they hired me and I had zero work experience. <laughs> but I had an entry-level clerical job. And... um I was happy to have it. I'll never forget my very first salary was $1,067 a month. And somehow I raised four children on that um, for a while. Uh, a year later, I remarried. And, you know, so we became a two-income family. Things got a little better, but it was crazy. We had six kids and everybody played something. But my career was doing wonderful things. I went into Lifeway hoping someday I could become an assistant editor. I loved, you know, English and writing. It had always been my passion. And my goal was assistant editor. But I found out if you wanted an editorial position of any level, you had to have a seminary degree at Lifeway. And I didn't have that. So I had to go to plan B and I started looking around and realizing nobody liked the operational end of things. Nobody liked dealing with inventory or budgeting. And so I started watching and learning and I had a 
wonderful boss who sent me to training. And I found out I was really, really good at it. And I had no idea. Because in ninth grade, Mrs. Cooper told me that that math was not my bailiwick. And I believed her. And it turns out she was wrong. And she's dead now. And I'm only sorry she's dead because I can't tell her how wrong she was. And um, so I ended up having this amazing career at Lifeway. And it got me promoted. Um, I was there for 14 years. When I left Lifeway in 2001, I was the VP of Supply Chain and Management for the Trade Division. I was in the management group, one of four women, 72 people in the management group, four women. But with that came a lot of pain. Um, People thought I was wonderful until I got promoted into the management group because I was aggressive and I got things done. Um, People in logistics and the warehouse and IT loved working with me because I thought they were an important part of my supply chain. And no one else thought that from the editorial areas. And so I had this great opportunity with them. But once I got promoted into the management group, then the men at Lifeway, many of them saw me as a threat Mm. and it started to get vicious. The rumors started um, very hurtful things like, well, there's no way that she could have gotten that job. Obviously she slept her way to the top, which was particularly hurtful to me. And, um, You know, I I put up with that kind of crap. Uh, Listen to this story. So I am in a management group meeting and we had them twice a year. All 72 of us would come together. It would be two days of meetings and information. And every now and then they would divide us up into small work groups for a discussion. Well, whenever we got divided into work group, there was never more than one woman in a work group because there weren't enough women. But I happened to be in one. The discussion was being led by one of the authors that I knew and respected. He knew me because of my position with the trade division. And so he was asking lots of questions and I had a lot of thoughts about these questions. So I would raise my hand and when he'd call on me, I'd answer. Well, evidently the dude sitting next to me, who was my peer, thought I talked too much. And at one point he turned to me and said, are you going to answer every question? And I kind of laughed him off. I said, well, if I think I have a good answer, yeah, I am. (laughs) And the next time that the facilitator called on me, I started to answer and he reached out to put his hand over my mouth Mm. to shut me up. And I just turned and looked at him. He took his hand back down. I finished my thought and I sat there debating. I didn't want to make a scene. Um, And I thought, do I say something to him after the meeting? And I thought, you know, there is no point. So I went to HR and they listened to me. They wrote it all down. They were very respectful. We're so sorry this happened to you. You were a valuable member of our staff. We appreciate your work. And they were very kind. And then six months later, he got promoted. Oh, shit. So that was life at Lifeway. Uh And the patriarchy was so just ingrained. Um, I finally left there in 2001. Um, 
I saw a handwriting on the wall. Some new people had gotten promoted in our division. And one guy who had become our editorial VP detested me in management. He was very right-wing. He started signing a lot of right-wing authors. And because of my position, I served on the publishing board. So I got a yes or no vote onto what we published. And I voted no one too many times. And he started his campaign to get rid of me. And at that point, I took an opportunity to move to Birmingham to help take care of my parents who were not well. And I took a position. It was with another Southern Baptist organization but it was run by women. It's called the Women's Missionary Union. And they had a trade publishing imprint called New Hope Publishers, and I became their publisher. Mm. Great joy in that job. We were publishing books for women. We were doing Bible study, books of interest. We did books about helping women who were in abusive situations. Um, women... I mean, it was just, it was a delightful time, but WMU was hated by the patriarchy of Southern Baptist, and the battle between WMU and the Southern Baptist leaders was just vicious. Um, Southern Baptist, uh, WMU, like many Southern Baptist organization and other women's organization, it's over 100 years old, and it was dying, and um after a few years there, I went to work for a up-and-coming student event company that moved at warp speed, So, and I helped them launch a publishing imprint. So you know, I spent 25 years in Christian publishing, and it was amazing, and uh, some of it was very frustrating because the patriarchy is so ingrained in that. And um, it's so name author driven. And this is when the Left Behind series was coming out. Oh, and the best, was, those are the best books, aren't they? Oh yes, it was just oh, it was unbelievable, and it was unbelievable to watch some of these authors march around at all the big book events with their entourage, and to watch the Benny Hens of the world and all that be lauded and. It was just, it, it was, it's not a good industry. It, it, it really is messy. It's it's not a good publishing um, paradigm and it's not a good Christian paradigm. Uh, and, um, so, but I spent 25 years in, in it and it was very good to me. Uh, you know, I had a level of success that was rewarding, but uh, I finally left it when we moved from Birmingham back up to Nashville, and there really weren't many jobs in Christian publishing available, particularly at my level. And I interviewed with Lifeway to go back, and I just couldn't go back. I, yeah. I could not do it. And because theologically, I was giving up on Southern Baptist. Yeah. And it was going uh, to lead me to ask you, like, so how, when did you eventually leave the, the Southern? I mean, I pray to God you did, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But not until 2008. But I really began a journey away from the evangelical theology in 1997. Um, I went through a second divorce in 1994, my second husband, um, and spent three years again as a single parent. And it was absolutely horrible. I felt like an abject failure. And the guilt and the shame... Um, it had to be my fault. 
even though he had had affairs. I had biblical reasons for divorcing him, as I like to be told. But I felt like God was punishing me because of my choices and my decisions. And, you know, I had two teenagers that were in rebellion and my life was so difficult. And I remember one day in my office, I don't remember what had precipitated it, but I got a phone call from my daughter. I don't know if she'd had another wreck or if she was with a drug dealer boyfriend or what. But after I hung up, I just put my head down on my desk. I was so tired and so discouraged. And my boss walked in and he knew a little bit of my family history and stuff. And so he said, oh, what has happened? And I told him and he knew a lot of what had already happened. And he just looked at me and said, you know, with all this stuff happening to you, I think I'd be asking God, why are you, what have I done to make you so mad at me? Hmm. And I just remember thinking, I don't like that God. I don't want anything to do with that God. I, I just can't believe that's the true character of God, that God would punish me. For this, I'm basically a good person. I've tried to do the right things, you know, active in my church, active in missions. So why would God punish me? And that was begin when I began to think that doesn't fit. And the irony of this is that same boss knew I was struggling with my faith. He said, here, here's a book you ought to read. You might find something in here to identify with. And he handed me a copy of Traveling Mercies by Anne Lamont. And I still am so surprised he did. And that book was transformational for me because I saw her worshiping a God that was different than my God. Yeah. I saw her in a relationship with a Jesus I did not know. And that was when I began changing my train of thought. And so in 1997, I had this big epiphany moment. It was absolutely a transcendent moment where I began to examine a different path. But there was a part of me that didn't want to give up on Southern Baptist because I was of that group that said, if we all leave, then we give it over to them. And so you stay and fight. Mm. So I stayed for another 11 years until wow. I finally realized my voice doesn't matter. They don't care and it's getting worse. And so in 2008, I became a Methodist. <laughs> and four years later is when it really started because I got with a spiritual director who started out by saying, you know, the first thing we need to do is heal your image of God. And that's what we set out to do. And so here we are seven years later. And not only have I healed my image of God, it has been a transcendent experience of healing, of learning, of creating uh, really a new theology. And, you know, Matthew, one of the things that we talked about that night, I, I had turned to you at one point and said, you know, I'm just, it's like I'm creating my own theology now. And 
you know, one of the other people sitting at the table said, can you do that? And we both went, well, sure. That's what everybody's done over history. You know, John Wesley did it. John Calvin did it. Martin Luther did it. You know, they all had their own theology involved. I'm not here to start a movement. I'm not here to start a new denomination. I am just here to fight find out what works for me and God yeah, and what works. For, I was just going to say what works for me and God is recognizing Jesus as this example of what love can do in this world and that the, there is power in that and it can win and it can work. And so one of my goals now is to, um, be a part of the LGBTQ community as an ally for them to know that not all people who follow Jesus are assholes, that they are loved exactly as they are, that they are created in God's image and are people of worth. All of us are, and that nobody needs to convert them or change them, that they are beautifully and perfectly and wonderfully made. And so I am, that's where I'm spending my time now. This is where I'm putting my effort is just finding ways for people to know that God loves them. Yeah, that's really powerful stuff. And, and you're right. The LGBT community needs to hear voices like yours so that they would realize, well, yeah, I, I understand their pain in terms of like, yeah, there are a lot of assholes out there. I don't understand their pain because, you know, we are, we are our own individuals. We have our own experiences. And so I can only imagine what it's like for marginalized communities like that. Um, but I've seen the assholeness of the church. And we need more like yours, Becky, who are speaking out against that. Well, and, you know, I, 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 I'm not doing it for the church. Sure. But I am doing it because I want them to know that there is a God that loves yeah. them. And the God that created them doesn't want them to be different. Um, one of the things I have just signed up to start doing, we have an organization in Nashville called Launchpad. And it's a shelter ministry for homeless young adults ages 18 to 24. Many of these are young adults that have aged out of the foster care system and have nowhere to go. Um, all of them are homeless. They estimate there's a thousand to twelve hundred homeless young adults. Forty percent of them are from the LGBTQ community. Mm -hmm. um, and some of them came out of foster care. Some of them just got kicked out of their homes where parents chose church over their children. Mm. And um, so I have just gone through training to start working with this organization and volunteer at one of the shelters and um, just be there for them to be present. I'm you know, working with an LGBTQ youth course uh, once a week. And these kids are unbelievable. They are so brave and bold and they have, they have been told you know, they're bullied and they've been told by others that, 
you know, you're worthless, that you can't be loved as you are, yet they come together and they support each other and they're there for each other. And some of them have beautifully supportive parents who then take in other LGBTQ kids whose parents have rejected them. But these kids come together. There's 18 to 20 of them that come together in this chorus. And last week we were sharing about stuff and and I had you know, so they wanted the adults to share too. They were sharing happy, crappy moments. You know, what happened this week that was great? What happened that was crappy? And so I said, well, you know what? My basically, my happy, crappy moment was the same thing. My divorce was final. And those kids turned around in their chairs and they reached out. They put their hands on me. A couple of them got up and put their arms around me. And I'm going, you guys... I didn't even know they knew I was there. And one of them said, look, you're here for us. We're going to be here for you. Mm. I lost it. And that's what love looks like. Right. Yeah. So don't tell me church. These kids don't belong. Yeah. Becky, thank you so much. So, so, so beautiful. The things that you've shared and that what you're involved in and, you know, something that comes to mind, just listening to you share your story, which is very powerful. Um, is and I'm involved in like personal, like life coaching work, which is similar to spiritual direction work. But one of the things uh, I always say, and I have a friend that always says this, that what we don't feel, we can't heal. Uh. Um, and it's so true. You know, it's I've just, there's something about feeling what's happened to us, feeling the effect of that, letting ourselves, you know, not, not try to, you know, shove it away as if it, you know, because it means something negative about us, but we've been affected and we can feel it. But then when that allows us to, to transcend the pain and to move beyond it, you know? Yes. And um, I appreciate your presence in the lives of so many people who need that. Um, because we do need to be present with, you know, people need to know that their pain has, it hasn't gone unnoticed that it's felt, but also that there's life beyond it as well. And I think you're, you're just a beautiful demonstration of that life beyond pain. So thank you for your life and what you're doing and your work. And where can, where can listeners hear more about or get in touch with you or hear more about your work? How, how can people well, I, <laughs> um, you know, that that's an interesting thing. I have just started a blog out of billions of blogs that are out there. But I realized that after I retired um, last June, not mm-hmm. to have that outlet of preaching, Uh, I said, I need another outlet because I still have things to say. So I am starting a blog. I'm going to work on getting very regular with it. I've only been posting about once a month or so, but um, I've called it uh, Soul Pondering. Now, soulponderer.wordpress.com. And my premise is not all who ponder are lost. (laughs) And, I, you know, because I, doubt and pondering has been the biggest gift to my faith of anything I have ever done. And I wasn't lost. I was seeking. Yeah. And it was in the doubt that I found my faith again. That's so yeah. good. So yeah. good. So thank you so much. I hope people, if you're listening, please go follow your blog. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure you'll have plenty of good things to share in the time in the future. Thank you guys so much. I I really appreciate you 
let me have an outlet today. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time, Becky. Uh, It was awesome. That was a good episode. That was a good one. Yeah. I love that. I love that accent. I got to be honest. (laughs) I love that Southern accent. She's a, she's a, she's a, a lovely lady. I, 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 like I said in the, in the uh, interview, um, just loved hanging out with her. Loved seeing her in Nashville when I was visiting family. She's a wonderful woman. And um, I think is kind of the embodiment, I think, of how you go about dealing with our culture. And, and our topic, as Keith accidentally said, is the cancel culture. And I think Becky seems like one of those, one of those ladies who would have her views and want to press on, on some things, especially the LGBT issue without necessarily scapegoating those who aren't there. And that's what I think a lot of, um, I don't know how you guys feel on this, and we'll get into that now, but uh, I feel like a lot of what cancel culture does is just demonize and scapegoat the people who aren't there. And I think you can be really critical of, of people's views while also not necessarily writing them off as if there's never a chance to grow and learn something. And that's my big problem with cancel culture is like, once we're, once someone's been canceled, it's like, well, what about if they wanted to grow or they need to grow or they eventually do grow? Like now what? Like you've already written them off as some terrible, terrible person. And, and I just, I got a lot of thoughts on, on this, this whole thing, but I want to hear what you guys are, uh, where you guys are at. Well, before, before we, uh, before we all chime in, uh, I think maybe for some of our older listeners who are not as hip and savvy as the three of us are, maybe we should explain exactly what we're talking about. When we say cancel culture, totally. what is that? What, what are we talking about? What are we referring to? Well, I mean, it, 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 from what I understand is that if you misstep in, in the way you use language, the verbiage you use, um, that you can just be written off as like some sort of predator or horrible, horrible person. And then we, mm-hmm. we basically scapegoat you and kick you out of the community and to never hear from you again. And that could be from right. people who have done horrible things, but it can go so far as to people who maybe even use the wrong words. And, and we just want to say, oh, this person is the worst of the worst. Cancel them, meaning don't watch their, if they're a celebrity, don't buy their album, don't watch their show. Mm-hmm. If they're, you know, don't read their books, nothing like that. They're just gone. Pretend like they don't exist. Yeah. Um, and I think um, it is an extreme form of scapegoating. And it seems to be, at least I think we're more aware of it, uh, when it is someone who's sort of a celebrity, right? It's somebody who's a, they're an actor, they're a musician, they're, they have a TV show, they have, they're in some way in the public's uh, eye and it comes out, or maybe they're in politics, right? And it comes out that, oh, when you were in college, uh, you, you went to a costume party and you dressed up like Michael Jackson, that makes you a racist, therefore you're done, you should resign and you should go away and never come back again or, or something like that. Or sure. it could be, so it could be something as, as, as seemingly, you know, minor compared to someone like, um, you know, like Harvey Weinstein or someone who's uh, been exposed as a sexual predator or something like that, but, you know, like Bill Cosby or something. So, um, so, but there's a, there's sort of a spectrum in between. And, but even, I would say even for people on the really, really, what we would call the criminal, really the horrible end of the spectrum, um, you know, again, are we, are we saying if we're people that believe in, grace were for people that believe in transformation. I mean, just as an example, let's say, let's say we met someone or we know someone who murdered someone, right? So they were 18, 16 years old, 15 years old, you know, young person, 
uh, hanging with the wrong crowd, made a mistake, killed somebody, went to jail. They just, they've been in jail for 30 years. They've served their time. They get out. Um, is that somebody where we can hang out with and talk to and, and give, uh, you know, some, some grace? Well, then why can't we give grace to somebody who's done something a lot or a lot less than that? You know what I'm saying? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a great question, but <clears throat> giving grace to people for their sins, um, I mean, I, I think that's okay. It's all fine and good, except unless they're a Christian, then we should not give them grace. Of course not. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the, re- the reason for that, I'm, I'm just quoting the Bible. So let me, let me give you, let me give you a, ver- let me, let me tell you somebody who championed the cancel culture. First Corinthians chapter five, verse 11 says, <clears throat> but now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy an idolater or a verbal abuser, a drunkard or a swindler with such a man do not even eat. Verse 12, what businesses, what business of mine is it to judge those outside the church? <clears throat> Are you not to judge those inside though? It's an unquote. It's kind of my paraphrase, but is, isn't mm-hmm. that cancel culture? <laughs> I mean, Christians like, look, let's judge them. You know, let's not, they don't even associate with yeah. these people. Yeah. If that's what, if that's what Paul's saying. Then I got to yeah. disagree. Well, you know what? I mean, well, I would, yeah, but, but, but I think, uh, and I don't have a Bible in front of me, of course. Uh, I do. I need my son and end line, whatever uh, Bible. I don't have it. Um, but I think in that same, and it may be in the same chapter, doesn't Paul go on to say, but such were some of you? Like, doesn't he point out that, hey, by the way, you guys, um, in other words, he's sort of like, he says that, I think, as sort of a shock thing. But then I think he comes back later and says, but hey, guys, remember, uh, you all are guilty of similar things. So I, I think in some ways it could also be, if you take the wider uh, view of, of what is said in, in 1 Corinthians, there's also room still for that grace of saying, yeah, some people have done horrible things and yeah, we should judge them. But hang on a minute. Haven't we all been guilty of some of these same things? And didn't we enjoy the fact that we've been forgiven for those things? We've been uh, allowed to remain in, in fellowship and those kinds of things. So. Um, I, I totally hear where you're coming from, Jamal. I'm not trying to defend uh, Paul just in general. And, I, and I, I certainly would agree with the idea, like what Matt just said, if, if that's the end of it, if that's if you had a period of that sentence and you're and someone wants you to take that as your practice, then yeah, I disagree with that. I think that's a bad, bad idea. But I think, like I said, I could go to the same book of 1 Corinthians and come, come out with uh, a slightly different view of that same idea that says, well, maybe actually we should have grace for one another because we, we, we screwed up ourselves. We've done uh, the same exact things that we're condemning them for. Yeah. And Paul, and Paul, to be fair, and, and I don't know if it's specifically in this verse, but he's doing the same prosopoia thing that he does in yes. Romans in, in Corinthians. So he's, he is making yes, a rhetorical argument throughout Corinthians. I, I forgive me. I don't remember exactly. Yeah, this where. is an interesting. The reason I bring up the passage <clears throat> is because first of all, I've, you know, I've, he's basically saying, you know, my understanding is, is that, yeah, some, you were one of these people at one time, but now you're not because you are quote unquote in the faith. Now, no, now you're no longer one of these people. So we're not going to judge those outside the church, but Paul is actually giving an advocation for those inside the church to be held to a different standard. And so there were people in this community that were claiming to be followers of the way and, you know, were part of the church, but they were doing these, they were committing these acts, these, these behaviors 
that folks outside the church were doing. And they're saying, look, those are the people you judge. Should we? He's basically advocating you should judge people inside the church. Now, I don't agree with Paul here. I actually think this is what he's saying, though. It's pretty clear to me, my understanding of it. It's like, yeah, he's advocating for and th- and this is and they they did they put people out of the fellowship for certain things and they were dealing with real issues in that community I get it this is where I would draw the line though I think that's I can't tell you how, this has been used on me I've been on the receiving end of this from Christians who say you're teaching heresy so therefore you know you're really you know you're you're what you're teaching is promoting people to do these things that you know Paul says that we should judge folks for in the church so we're not going to even associate with you or have conversation with you or all that kind of thing. And again, I, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not throwing Paul out and making him this bad guy, but I do think this is an example of how that kind of religious, I mean, cause cults do this and groups do this all the time where they exclude people who don't think that way. Of course, evangelical, you know, this is par for the course in in most Christian traditions. So it's, um, it's really interesting here. Yeah. And 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 regardless of our take on Paul, the the rea- I mean, what's one hundred percent accurate is is what you're saying is that yeah, within any cultish tribalistic sort of religion, we do that. The ironic thing is a lot of people, and we'll I'll just use this term loosely on the secular side of things. Maybe people who grew up fundamentalist or, or even 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 evangelical mm-hmm. who are now the woke in the woke crowd. They're on like the really hardcore progressive left, and they don't necessarily have a um, a religious identity any longer. They can be just as fundamentalist in this way too. And the and this is what we're seeing, I think. On and I consider myself fairly liberal in a lot of things that I believe, but in in liberal circles, to completely cancel you as if it's its own like religion now. Mm-hmm. And it, but it's the same behavior. It's almost. Um, I mean. If I only studied mimetic theory for a second, mm-hmm. I could see what's going on. Yeah. Right? And that's the ironic. It's like there's a fundamentalist brand on the right and a fundamentalist brand on the left. And when you step back, they're almost yeah. the same. Well, I, I do agree. Yeah. Um, you make a good point, Jamal, that certainly there are verses like that one in the scriptures that can be and unfortunately have been used that have been weaponized um, to to become to create sort of a toxic scapegoating culture within the church and to, and to sanctify that and to bless that. And uh, I'm definitely against that. And I, I agree with you. I've seen it happen. Um, I pr- probably, I guess, experienced it to be honest, um, you know, like on the false teacher side of things anyway. And uh, yeah, it's not good. And I don't think it's Christ-like. I don't think it's one of those examples of being biblical, mm-hmm. but not Christ-like. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I, I think to give Paul credit here, like I'm sure they were dealing with a real, I mean, they, they obviously were dealing, he was writing a letter to, obviously he was involved in the, in the lives of those people that were living in that community. And I'm sure they were trying to fix a problem or address an issue that was going on in that community. So I get that. Uh, you know, I've had to have in my own life, in my own journey, I've had to have like times where I draw boundaries with people that, that are either, you know, it's just toxic in my life. It's not helpful. So I've had to draw boundaries where I'm, I'm going to say, you know, I'm not really going to continue this relationship in the way that it's been or I'm not going to associate in the same way. And that can be, that can feel like, you know, like somebody's being canceled and that kind of thing. I don't mean it to be that way, but there are times that you have to draw those boundaries. And maybe Paul was trying to address something like that. Like, okay, there's an issue here and there needs to be some boundaries, but that's the problem with these letters and, and how they've been treated as if they're like guidelines for, 
how we should all function and one size fit all kind of thing. I think that's, that's where the problem comes in, um, you know, in that issue. But I do think I'm fascinated with Matt, what, what you said about like on the progressive side of things, the woke community, so to speak, that they're just doing the same thing. Cancel people. You know, I think about like <clears throat> Roseanne Barr, you know, obviously she said some crazy things and her, her show's like canceled and immediately like they change the name of it and they just go on like it, like she was never part of it. Like they write her off the show and she just, you know, it's, it, it, and it's like that right. across the board. I, my, my theory on that is that people aren't comfortable um, in the conversations if they're like, for example, they're, if they are triggered, you know, so like if, if somebody says something and that's a buzzword, but like if somebody, if something said, if we say something or another person says something that triggers a sensibility or a sensitive area in another person's life, they just automatically want to be like, can't have that conversation. Don't want to go there. Don't like how it makes me feel. See you later. And that's kind of, I think, some of the motivation behind the cancel culture because people don't feel comfortable about having conversations about things they don't agree with or maybe that that have caused them pain, you know? Yeah. And, and right. Well, what, what, yeah, go for well, it. Pete. I don't know. I, I'm, you go, you go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, well, what, what's it, what's interesting about the whole thing is that, and this is where I do like what Paul's going to, I don't want to go back to Paul all the time, but. But he emphasized something Jesus was saying. Basically, if you're going to judge people, you're going to be judged by the same manner. And guess what? You're going to find out that you yourself right. are condemned. And so when this, when this comes to the, the woke culture, I can only imagine that the people who are the most woke now, and, and to be honest, if you're calling yourself woke, you ain't. Um, but in 100 years, people are going to look back, society's going to look back and, and just go, oh, my God, how ignorant these people were. They thought they were so woke. And we do this all the time. Like we, we, we tend to judge people in the past by our modern yes. standards and we're always going to look back and go look at how stupid and ignorant and dumb and um this and that that they were that if we don't think that's going to happen in 50 100 years well, we're just mm -hmm. being ignorant yeah and, and 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 it's like how about we just sleep sweep off our our own porch yeah there's nothing wrong with calling out bullshit if someone if someone did some stuff it makes me think of Aziz. Like he, I'm sure he did some stuff that right. is not good, stuff that I, I he probably is embarrassed about. But if we just don't give him room, if we say he's Harvey Weinstein or he's Bill Cosby, no. we I, we don't give anyone any room to actually go like, wow, I did do something bad. Because I guarantee, if we look at our own life, we're gonna look back 15, 20 years if we're truly, you know, being honest and go, God. I did some stupid shit that would get me canceled. Now I'm the one right. canceling people. Well, that's the nature of the scapegoating, you know, mechanism, isn't it? Right. Cut. Yeah. It's so that <laughs> right. um, it's, it's actually subconsciously or maybe, maybe even consciously it's better. Like, Hey, everybody condemn that guy for that horrible thing he did, because maybe if you're focused on him, you won't pay attention to, to me and no one will, you know what I mean? Like let's turn the attention away from what I've done. And yeah, maybe I've done the something similar, maybe even worse, but you know, but but if I'm quiet, if I'm silent, then people might go, hey, why isn't he joining in? Maybe he did something. Maybe he's not saying something because he's guilty, too. And so you're sort of like you have to join in um, in the outrage of that person's, you know, quote unquote, crime or sin or whatever, because uh, if you don't, it's going to call attention to you. People, suddenly people are going to go, well, hey, Kim, how come you're not condemning Aziz? I'm sorry. You know what I mean? Oh, you, oh, you still watch him? You still think he's funny? Oh, really? Oh, then maybe there's something about you we need to look into. And so, yeah, it's sort of like that. Um, you're sort of you're sort of culturally shamed into joining in uh, 
one way or the other. Yeah, uh, it's it's um, you know I think part of it. Yeah. What can be really interesting is this. It's just a sense that, um, a, a, like a sense of injustice. You know, I think people when they when they think about this this issue of you know cancel culture or whatever, but it's like I think it was it um, uh, Barack Obama or somebody recently said and talk, talking about the political discourse and just said it's like a circular firing squad. You know, everybody just kind of shoots at each other and um, and, and before and then no one's left. You know, it's, you're literally shooting in a circle and everyone's everyone's going to get hit. So it's. It's this sense of like you know of another form of judgment, and um, and that's just again, it's that's what prevents people from actually having the conversation or jumping in the arena. It's like why would you even thinking about the political arena? Like why would any decent human being, you know, I mean, they have to really, why would any decent human being want to put themselves through that? Because it's you're just inviting uh, people to scrutinize your past and look at you know every little thing you've ever said or did and, and try to dig up dirt on you. I, I, to me, it's a classic ad hominem um, argument where it's like against the person. And and then you don't have to listen to what they say. Mm-hmm. You don't have to listen to their, you don't have to actually engage in their conversations or their arguments because it's it's now about the person. Right. So it's, yeah, it doesn't go anywhere. Well, yeah. And, that, and see, this is the thing where, um, you know, it used to be that this kind of a thing uh, was really, uh, really sort of confined mostly to politics, right? Like it's sort of like, like if you were to announce to your spouse, "Hey, I think I'm going to run for office," the first thing would be, "Oh crap, here it comes! They're going to start digging up dirt on you. They're going to, you know, kind of pull up stuff in your past to try to discredit you again because they can't deal. It's easier to do that than to deal with you right now and mm-hmm. whatever it is you're standing for." So it used to really be kind of confined to politics, and they just expected, like, "Yep, yeah, well, you're." You're going to get into politics. Someone's going to dig up some dirt about your past. But now it's like you're in the public eye in any way. You could even just be someone who on social media who's got, you know, 5,000, 10,000 followers and you've got a following and then somebody finds out something. Oh, I found a YouTube clip of yours or I found this little thing from your college, your, you know, uh, yearbook or something. And then game over, man. Like it, it's, it's gotten to this point where it's just it's really out of control, you know? Yeah. And, and, and I, but I, on the one hand, I think we should, um, be able to look at our past and see that, um, we've done some stupid things in our past. The, the fact that we get written off for something that you might've done in college is, is ridiculous because like, let's say someone let, let, I mean, this, this, this will be controversial as if (laughs) nothing else is on the show. Um, if someone, if someone's in their sixties and let's, let's say they dressed up in blackface in their college years. That's that's fucking horrible. Like that's ridiculous and and ignorant and stupid. But if the person recognizes that very thing that yeah, I did that, if they own it and was like, yeah, that was dumb. That was horrible. That was offensive. That was racist. That was uh nearsighted. Whatever you want to say and they say I would never do that again. In fact, I would uh completely be against that and openly yep. say that I was completely wrong. Should that person get canceled? Yes. And a lot of people, I think, where we're at is they say yes. And I think that that's the problem is that where is the room for someone to look back on their own life and say, I have made a complete 180 from that ridiculous decision I did. I'm not that person anymore. Is, do we have enough grace yeah. Well, that's, yeah. I, and I, I think we to should. give them that? I mean, if they, and if they double down and they say, no, that was, that was, there's right. nothing wrong with that. I didn't do anything wrong. Well, then that's a different yeah, conversation. But if, but if, they, but yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. If you try to deny it or if you try to defend it, then yeah, then okay, now you're just, you're screwed. But if you, uh, if you do, like you said, if, if someone, and I've seen this happen 
you know, several times um, where people have gotten called out or like, hey, we found uh, a photograph of you in blackface at a college party. And, and, the, and, the, and if you respond and say, yeah, you know what, I did do that. And I'm so I apologize for that. I was so stupid. I was a different person then. You know, I've learned so much since then. Um, I, you know, and, and if you kind of go way out of your way to own it and apologize and, and, uh, and, you know, really like you've got to own it, right. Then fine. Then that should be right. enough. That should do it. But I've also seen people where that same, almost nearly the same thing has happened. And then they're like either denying it. Well, that's not me. I don't remember that. Um, you know, they're just trying to distance themselves from it or, or justify it, you know, to say, well, no, look, that's, you know, that was just the way it was. And, it was no big deal. And then there's no apology. There's no admission that, yeah, I can see how that would offend someone. Well, then now you've owned it. Like you've owned, you've owned the, the reaction you're going to get, which is that you're not acting as if you have moved on. You're acting as if you would do it again tomorrow, because again, you're acting as if it's no big deal. So yeah, there is something on the, on the person, I suppose. But, but again, with this kind of toxic weaponized cancel culture, it, it, it's gotten to the point where it doesn't matter if you own it. It doesn't matter if you admit it. It doesn't matter if you apologize. You're still, you know, sorry, you're out. You're out. And that, see, I think that's, that's where it's revealing. So the fact that it doesn't matter, because you look at what's happening. I mean, I, there's, there's, there's great people out here that have been canceled and they apologize profusely. It didn't matter. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's telling of the motivation that's behind it. So the motivation, if it's, if you're out to get somebody, if, if the culture is, I'm going to find a reason to disqualify you. Well, then that's, that's kind of a, that the intent behind that is, um, is not, you can't satiate that. Only thing that will satiate that is death. Basically, it's like murder. It's right. Like rid of that yes. person. It's kind of like the scapegoat. It, look, it is the scapegoat. Yeah. The scapegoat can defend themselves and make a great case, but the aim is like we got to kill this thing. So That's I mean, right. I'm, like just for example, there was was it uh, Megan Kelly who was decorated yes. journalist. You know, she's uh, you know who, it doesn't matter. I mean, she's tends to be more. Well, she was on Fox News for a long time, but she went over to NBC. And, but we're really a decorated journalist. Really, really tend to be great at her job. Recognized in the industry as somebody who was really tough and thorough in her interviewing and she had her own uh, show her own like talk show and of course you know she just wanted to have the conversation like what's wrong right. with blackface now yeah, again, she just asked the question exactly like, what's wrong with it? because when i was a kid we used to do that and like that was because we really like they wanted to dress up as somebody who was african-american for halloween because they you know people do that all the time they dress up as certain characters you know um yeah and so she Michael knew Jackson, that mr t all those, yeah, yeah, t- like that. totally and you know um and in Europe, I know they do that still. It was like a, it's kind of a common practice in some places. And so it was an honest question, like, what's wrong with it? And of course, people from, you know, of color were going to talk about like, okay, let me tell you what's wrong with that. From our perspective, this is how it feels demeaning, which is a, which is a needed conversation. They canceled yeah. the show. That's right. I mean, yeah. she, she apologized no. and they still canceled, canceled the show. Yeah. And so her crime was really just being tone deaf and expressing um, ignorance and saying, I don't, as a white person who grew up in a white culture, I don't understand this. Right. Um, help me understand it. And the very fact that you just asked the question, that's enough for you to be like completely, you're canceled. Your career is over. Yeah. Whole career yeah. gone. And it's ridiculous. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's totally nuts. But so here's the thing. I think that's what, because there's a place for um, maybe healthy or righteous kind of confrontation. 
or calling out things. I think there's a place for that in our society, in our conversations. Um, so the, maybe the line between that is like, what is the aim? What are we trying to do? Are we trying to, so like confrontation sometimes needs to happen. I mean, that can happen. There's many different ways of confrontation. I mean, sometimes in the coaching work I do, people are, I, I mean, sometimes I have to get pretty confrontational with people in our work because they're literally, you know, not owning destructive behaviors they're actually engaged in repeatedly. And I'm like, my role is to interrupt the pattern. And so I'm like, look at what you are doing to your life. Look, and, and sometimes it can get really like direct and that's confrontational. And I think there's a place for that. And of course, even in our society, there's a place for like calling out hypocrisy or, you know, injustice or things that are going on that shouldn't be going on. I just think that it, when we have the aim of taking somebody down, destroying them, that's when it, that to me is, that's the root of the cancel culture. And that's where it crosses a line. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, there's, there's no reason people shouldn't be like, Megan, right. seriously, you don't fucking know. Right. Like, yeah, <laughs> let up. me tell you, like, of course, like, that's where it's like, yeah, wake the, wake the hell up. Um, you know, but it isn't, isn't a person who's asking questions. I mean, we should give them the benefit of the doubt, I think. And maybe, okay, so let me tell you why you're ignorant and tone deaf to why this is a problem and give, and maybe give them a chance to, meditate on that to contemplate that say oh i asked this question i didn't see it before i'm sorry for being so tone deaf and and ridiculous and i learned something and so now i understand why it's why you don't do blackface and why that is a ridiculous thing to even do yeah exactly so but but we all have to learn that way we all learn by asking questions and we all have blind spots yeah and you know what i think also um I mean, here's an example. Like, uh, I, I used to write years ago. I mean, we're talking more than 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago. It's been a long, long time ago. I used to write, um, a column for this, uh, music magazine called Fuse Magazine. It was published up in the kind of the Michigan area. And, uh, some friends of mine were doing it and they asked me to help them out. So I reviewed some albums for them and, uh, did some interviews for them. And then I, but I also did every issue I wrote this like the back column, like the final word kind of thing. And I found a stack of them as we were moving. I, I found a stack of them uh, going through my stuff and I pulled them out. I'm like, oh, this is so cool, man. And I'm flipping through them and I'm starting to read over these things that I wrote like 15, 20 years ago. And I'm telling you, man, it was so embarrassing. Like, huh. I'm like, I'm like, God, I hope no one finds this with my name <laughs> on it because they're going to read this and go, oh, look what he thinks about this. And I'm like, no, I don't. I mean, I did then, but I was an idiot back then, right? So, for example, the one, I'll just want to tell you one of the most the embarrassing one, the one that really was like, oh, God, um, at the time, uh, I think the NIV, uh, Holman Bible Publishers, I think it was, was going to publish an, a version of the NIV that was, um, what do you call it, gender neutral or, you know, so it's like it was mentioning men and women instead of just men and that kind of a thing. And um, it wasn't like they were calling God she. It wasn't to that degree. It was simply just saying Instead of saying brothers, it said brothers and sisters or that kind of a thing. And and I wrote mm-hmm. this ridiculous thing, you know, about how oh, just let's just why don't we just listen to what God says and let the Bible speak the way it wants to be. And, you know, and stay let's true to the word of God. Back. Let's stay true yes, to the no. word of God. Oh, gosh, it was horrible. And and, uh, you know what I mean? So, like, we've all got stuff like that in our past where it's like, uh, you know, I just didn't know what I was saying. I was an idiot and I didn't know any better. Right. So. Again, I've, I, now, shouldn't it matter more who I am now? 
shouldn't matter more what I'm doing today than what I, some stupid thing I did year, 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago. Right. But it, with this woke culture, it's like, uh, in this cancel culture, it's like, no, that, no, that, that's still who you are. You've got to apologize. You've got to stand, you, you've got to pay the price, you know, for this, this thing you've done. Like, oh my gosh, I feel like I have, I spent, I spent the last 20 years unlearning that crap. Right. Totally. Totally. So it would be dis- right. dishonest if someone were to go in and like dig up a quote from you from You're like, right. and then be like, see Keith Giles, you know, like he, uh, let me tell you something. He really is like, you know, he's a, he's, he's a, he's a chauvinist and he doesn't, you know what right. I mean? Like, I mean, that would be totally dishonest cause that doesn't factor in, but that happens all the time, especially yes. in the political arena, people digging up stuff. They don't give they don't respect where a person's process or journey. It's just all about let's destroy somebody's character. And, and, right. and that's the problem and all of that. I think, but it goes, it goes even beyond like digging up stuff though. I remember I, I heard some people who wanted to cancel logic and I don't know if you're f- familiar with logic. Well, I think logic is a very helpful he, discussion tool. And it was. Yeah, it's, a very, it's a very good course to take in college, yeah. but I would, why would you, God, that's taking old, it way too far. That's taking uh, it way too far. I took, I, I took a logic old, course. I got a, old man, Kyle. Old man. <laughs> I got a DM. All right, logic is a rapper who looks white. He has white what? skin, but his, but he's half black. He's half black and he uses the N word and people want to cancel. I'm like, it just, we become such hypocrites and it's like, wait, are you judging? Are you judging whether a person is this or that based on the color of their skin? You just reveal yourself to be a hypocrite when you do that kind of stuff. I'm like, why? You're, so you're telling a guy who had a, who has a black dad that he can't use the N word. And, and you know what annoys me is it's, and I don't want to go over the top, but it's mostly white people <laughs> who are doing, who are doing this stuff. You know what I mean? Like, like the, it's like the white knight syndrome. I was like, we're riding it. We're still riding in to save the day. Like I got to show how woke I am. I got to signal my virtue and speak on behalf of even black people and tell them what they can and cannot do and why they should be offended. Right. Like I yeah, am. That's true. And I don't know if you guys have noticed that, but it always just seems to be like white people. who are doing Well, this. you know, I, 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 it probably is, especially on things like that. But at the same time, it's not something that is only, white people. You know what I mean? I think depending on who the person is and who the situation is, um, anybody can kind of fall prey to this. Because it's a human thing. The scapegoating mechanism is really what's behind what we're talking about. And and everybody's... But but you're right. I think, unfortunately, it's usually... It seems to be a lot of white um, old people. (laughs) People my age. My my demographic. But it it is the scapegoating thing. It is the scapegoating thing because... I mean, just so we have it, we have this in our ancient stories. Look mm-hmm. at the Oedipus story. It's like there's a there's a plague on Thebes because of what Oedipus did, which was you know had sex with his mom, yeah, killed yeah. his dad, and, and look, look what happens. The minute the minute Oedipus gets kicked out of Thebes, the plague yes. goes away. I mean, if we just get rid of this person, they're the problem. Same thing happens in Numbers. The, the you know as, as soon as we can kill this Midianite yes, Israelite couple. Well, the plague, the plague yeah. is lifted. Hallelujah, yeah. praise know, Lord. One of the one of the problems, though, with with uh, getting offended, I don't is it, there's a term for that. I think right there's a term that's used to describe millennials or whatever people who are getting offended and kind of behind the cancel culture thing. I think they call them snowflakes, right? I'm allowed to say that. So I'm not going to cancel them. I but I think they call people like that snowflakes because they get so triggered or offended or upset. And the problem with that kind of mindset is that it really takes you out of the conversation. So you're not, you're just not going to have that conversation um, when you're, when you're offended and you want to cancel people. I remember reading, I think I was reading um, 
Barack Obama's book called uh, Dreams for My Father, and he was talking about a a time he was I think he was a he was in college and he was reading a book by a white racist. It was actually a book by by a white person advocating racism and discrimination. And of course, in their words, it was you know respecting the the races and keeping them separate and all this kind of thing. And so, <clears throat> obviously, a lot of his black friends were like, "Why are you reading that?" Like, what, what's wrong with you? And he's like, I want to understand. He's like, I just want to understand. I want to understand. Like, I, I mean, obviously we can just demonize these people and make them the, you know, the, the root of all of our problems. But if we don't understand the mindset, then how can we actually enter into the conversation, help shift things? I thought that was so really jumped out at me. And I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, like that's like, why, why are we afraid to enter into the conversations? You can disagree with people all you want, but if you're afraid to have the conversation or to enter in or to think about or even see where another person's coming from, really the issue's with you, you know, right. and it's not, it doesn't get you anywhere. We don't advance by suppressing ideas. We don't advance. We don't get enlightened by <laughs> suppressing voices and telling people what they can and can't say and that kind of thing. That's not how we move forward. And yeah. I think the cancel culture is, I get where they're coming from because they want to eradicate, you know, hate, hate speech and want to eradicate um, things that may be hurtful to people. And I get that, but you have to have the conversation. You yeah. got to think about the ideas. So you, you just uh, touched on something that um, two things we haven't touched on yet. So I agree with you. And, and uh, as you were saying what you were saying, I was thinking, yeah, I, I deal with people all the time who are unwilling to consider other ideas that are different from their own, right? When I say something about doctrine of hell being maybe different from what they believe or the Bible not being a magic book or whatever those kind of things, right? Uh, then then you, you encounter people that are not willing to go, well, let me just listen to another point of view, right? They immediately reject you and your idea again, and there's fear behind that and all that stuff. Um, but here's, the, here's something I, I want to kind of like take that idea and then take it to the other other direction. So let's, what I've noticed though, is that let's say you are someone who does consider other ideas, right? And suddenly you realize, oh my gosh, you know what? I used to have this really strong fundamentalist idea about the doctrine of hell, just using that as an example. Um, and I don't believe the internal torment anymore. Um, now I believe in either annihilation or universal reconciliation, right? So pick one. So now you've changed your mind. Yeah, don't, I don't believe eternal torment anymore. I think that's a bad, bad theology. It's toxic. And now I believe one of these other views. We can become progressive fundamentalists to the point where we are just as close-minded, just as committed to being right, just as uh, unwilling to listen to anybody else have another idea, shutting them down, insulting them, um, dismissing them. Like, and so I've seen this happen so many times where, where in other words, we we questioned our, our beliefs, we deconstructed our faith on a certain point, which is a good thing. I, I mean, I'm all in favor of deconstruction of, of, of bad ideas. But the bad thing is when you deconstructed it and now you, you've arrived on what you think, this is now the, the quote unquote, the truth about whatever this is. And then you become, you're still just as toxic and fundamentalist about that new idea as you were when you used to hold this other this other idea. And it's, um again, it's sort of like, we're, we have to stop being addicted to being right. We have to stop being so, um, you know, like proving that we're right and you're wrong and that whole that whole us and them kind of a thing. Uh, that's really also something that I see as a problem where, um, again, I, I think a lot of Christians who have deconstructed sometimes can be, they haven't let go of that thing of being right all the time that they used to, were, you know, were guilty of and, and was part of their uh 
their problem back when they were a fundamentalist or evangelical. Uh, and so, yeah, we can carry those kind of things with us, even as our ideas change maybe for the better, but we're still now, um, we haven't let go of some of those behaviors that continue to, you know, we start, we, we still skip scapegoat people. We still uh, paint people with this broad brush. We still aren't able to see anyone with a different idea as another human being uh, or what have you. I think we've we got to be careful of those things too. Yeah. And I think, I think it's a, a case of um, over mm-hmm. steering. So, so think of an analogy of like, let's say an animal runs in the road and we swerve around it. That's right. a good thing. It's a good thing to deconstruct. It's a good thing. Okay, I'm on this path. It's not so good. I need to get away. The problem is we, we often maybe get in an accident right. when we oversteer and then it goes too far and then we flip our car. Or we, you know, we do something. And then that's where I think we've gotten. We've oversteered to the point where mm-hmm. Aziz is, yeah. is Weinstein or Cosby, where anyone who said some shit on Twitter 15 years ago who may not even be close to where they are now, they're bigoted or whatever. And there's, and there's, and, and, and it's just, it's swung so, yeah. so, so far for many people that we'll go out of our way to post a bunch of stuff on social media about how this group is terrible and this group is bad. And, and this person said this way back in the day, right. it could have nothing to do with the present moment. It could have nothing to do with current reality. It just, it becomes that whole thing again. We're a, we, the progressive fundamentalists are a mirror of conservative fundamentalists. No, yeah, exactly. And yeah. if you think about fundamentalism in general, like it, I, I honestly think the psychology behind it, and this is not conscious, I'm sure on their end, but some of the the, the psychology behind it probably is. I, I tend to think my my this is just my observation that fundamentalists feel on the outside, so. They feel like they're on the peripheral. They're fighting against some, some, you know, some big group somewhere, and so a fundamentalist feels disconnected, and they're they're angry. They're kind of pissed about it, and so on the if you if you look at it on the conservative side, you know, they're always railing against where the majority seems to be going, and they're railing the, the world, world. Yeah, right. even the, you know, yeah. the liberals, the the evangelicals. You know, listen, you know, I've listened recently listened to you know the response John MacArthur's response to Beth Moore and. <laughs> Yeah, and just a lot of that was like, you know, look what the evangelical churches move. This we're sliding towards this. You know, it's this sense of like, but there's an anger. There's kind of a there's an edge to it. It's not just a conversation. It's like a there's a real kind of venom there. Oh yeah, and it's I I don't think they're conscious of that, and that's where I think it's fascinating. It's like, what is that anger? What is that? Because I think when you feel like you're on the outside, you're you're kind of suffering. You feel you feel left out. And so you feel on the, and you're trying to fight that. And then it's, it's, it's the same is true on the progressive side. It kind of feel like cornered, you know, by the conservative voices or whatever. And it's like, yeah, there's a sense of being left out and and marginalized. And so there's this anger and it's, it's, there's a way, there's almost like you have to agree with me to show that I'm not alone. See, I'm, I matter. I'm, you're with me. And if you don't, if you can't do that, um, then I'm angry and I'm, I'm, I'm going to, you're going to be the subject of my venom. I'm going to really attack you because you're, you're a reminder that I don't belong to you kind of a thing. I think that's kind of the psychology behind it. Um, and I don't think that people are aware of that. Um, otherwise you could just be like, yeah, I just don't agree. I don't, I don't see that point of view, but it's okay. We're, we're, we're all in the conversation together and I'm just offering a perspective and you're offering a perspective, but it's not like that. It's like, we got to rail against the folks that make me feel on the outside. I think that's the unconscious right. uh, kind of uh, psychology behind it. Yeah, there's it's it's insecurity and fear and uh, 
But I think that's one of the things I really sure. appreciate about um, about Rene Girard's mimetic theory is that, at least as I, one of the things that I understand about it is that one of the things that's so helpful is to see it. Like once you can see it, once you once you can you see the mechanism, yeah. now you recognize it in other people and in yourself. Like that's really the beginning of progress of like, oh, maybe now I can break out of this because I'm I'm aware of it. I'm, I can see when I do it. I can see when people are doing it to me or to other people. Uh, and then there's some hope to sort of like take a step back from it and say, yeah, you know what? I don't want to I don't want to participate in that mechanism anymore. Right. Right. So true. So true. And uh, yeah, if we <laughs> haven't been canceled yet, um, <laughs> let's let's keep the conversation going. Uh, if you we're, I'm sure we're going to keep this thing rolling uh, for another 10 minutes. And then we have like a little bonus snippet for those who do support us on Patreon. So if you want to do that, if you want to keep the conversation going. Uh, sign up at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, slash Heretic Happy Hour. And that'll give you access to a special Facebook group that we have where we talk about these things and flesh more ideas out. So um, please join that. Uh, cons- reconsider canceling us and uh, yeah, do that. And um, we also do have a website if you want to go to uh, heretichappyhour.com. Not only will you find all of our episodes... Uh, we also have an amazing little store there, and we have some awesome T-shirts like Agape Against the Machine, which I believe is the number one best-selling shirt of all time, um, or at least on that on that website. And uh, but we have others as well. Uh, I think uh, there's a Mary Magdalene shirt, and there's something, there's some shirt that Matt mm. came up with. I don't know, but you know, if you if you want, oh oh oh, the best part, the best part, we have these awesome throw pillows. You got to just take a look; they're hilarious. Anyway, all this stuff uh, would be make amazing Christmas gifts and um, go check it out. HereticHappyHour.com. Check out the store, check out the website. Um, there's all kinds of cool stuff there. You can uh, download for free and uh, you, you can even play a game, right? There's a game you can play uh, when you listen to the, to the show. Check it out. Careful though. It's a drinking game. So be careful. Oh, yeah, it is a drinking game, but you know, you can drink, you can drink hot chocolate or Kool-Aid or whatever. Chocolate milk. Sure. Totally. Totally. And guys, <clears throat> this morning, um, before we before we recorded this podcast, guess what I guess what I enjoyed? Uh, Sex. <laughs> no. uh, a donut. A do- <laughs> <laughs> yes, a donut from Sidecar Donuts. I, I was enjoying a Sidecar Donut uh, this morning. It was the best thing ever, and that reminds me that coming up, you ready for this? Coming up after the holidays in the new year. You can't think of a better way to start the new year. On the 4th of January, we're having our a live show. I don't even remember what number it is. No, live it show it's, it's, it's the first time, whatever it is. It's the first time, whatever number it is. It's the first uh, one of 2020. Yeah first, yeah, first live show of 2020. It's going to be at Sidecar. So everybody that's listening needs to mark your calendars. Just write it on your calendar. Just take your chalk and write it January 4th. And this is going to be, I believe, we we usually kick off at, at six thirty, I believe, but it's at January fourth in the evening, Saturday. It's a Saturday, so you have nothing to do. It's not like you have church on Sunday morning, so you don't have to worry about that. So Woo-hoo! just come out, and uh, we're going to have um, uh, a pretty, pretty, uh, pretty renowned and talented musician, mm-hmm. uh, musicians that will be there uh, performing. And uh, it's going to be a great topic. It's at side. It, we're actually meeting at Sidecar offices. Why I mentioned the Sidecar demo because I'm trying to be professional here. So trying to side the offices. 
at Sidecar Donuts. Yes, that's where we'll be meeting. So come on out, mark your counter, and join us for that. And uh, we have not been canceled on iTunes. We have not been canceled on iTunes, so rate us and review us there. Yes. 